find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. Welcome. Today, we're talking about safer alternatives to toxic chemicals in Massachusetts. And my guest is Mike Barrett, who is running for the Massachusetts State Senate to represent the 3rd District, which includes Bedford-Carlisle, Chelmsford-Concord, Lincoln, Waltham, Weston, and large parts of Lexington and Sudbury. Hello, Mike. Hi, Rob. Um, So you're calling us from uh, Lexington, right? I'm calling you from the wilds of Lexington, Massachusetts. And how's life in Lexington? What's that? How's life in Lexington? Uh, well, it's, it's a gorgeous fall morning. Uh, it's quite beautiful. I'm in the middle of a political campaign. That keeps me out of trouble and busy. Otherwise, things couldn't be better. So I hear your wife gets out on her bicycle, at least. Yeah, yeah she, uh, she's uh, a, uh, doing her best to reduce her carbon footprint, and, and, I, uh, and, and I will grab some credit by saying it's our family carbon footprint so that I get a partial... Uh, <laughs> Good. She... She uh, hops on her bike at 5.30 every morning, goes to the Minuteman Bike Trail in Lexington, an old railroad bed, of course, and pedals 11 miles uh, down into Cambridge to Airwife and takes the subway into work, mass transit. And uh, at night in the dark, even in the winter, as long as uh, ice doesn't intrude, she rides 11 miles back to our house in Lexington. Oh, my God. She's doing her part, and, and I'll grab the credit. How's that? There's not much light at 5.30 in the morning anymore. You know, it's true. Uh, it does. Uh, we have experimented a lot with bike lights, uh, and she's pretty happy at the moment oh, good. with the way things are going. And it's a gorgeous ride, even in the dark. And as the sun comes up, uh, if she's, if she's uh, along the meadowland between Arlington and Lexington, Massachusetts, she's very happy. Oh, sweet. My son used to ride his bike to the Field Museum along Lake Michigan. He found that he had to put studded tires on for the winter months. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So does she put studded tires on hers for the winter? Well, she does. We do have uh, studded, no, but she does have no. She does have good all-weather tires. Uh, she, you know, the, the one concern is ice. Uh, life can't be perfect, uh, but she's, uh, doesn't try to do, she doesn't try to ride fast. She's not a speed demon. She doesn't wear spandex. She wears clothes that uh, enable her to work comfortably later on in the office that day. But that said, she certainly covers the time in about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and that makes her happy. That is great. Well, we'll talk more about bike trails uh, later in the show, about your efforts for the Bruce Freeman Trail and stuff. But um, we're, you know, we're so excited that you're running for Senate because you're a familiar face. Now, what were the years that you were at the House of Representatives? Yes, I was, I was in the House from 1979 to 
1985, that's really dating myself, I took two years off and worked in the law and wrote a really lousy novel. And then in 86, served in the Senate. I, I should say I campaigned in 86, served from 1987 to 1995. I ran for governor in the 1994 Democratic primary. I did well but didn't win. And for the last 18 years, while we've been raising our kids, I've been in healthcare IT, healthcare and computers. Uh, that's been fascinating. But with this seat, this seat falling vacant out here, I decided to make a run. Uh, there are nine towns in the district. I think you enumerated them, but they're worth mentioning again. It's Concord, Carlisle, and Chelmsford. Then it's Weston and Waltham. Then it's Lincoln and Lexington. And then finally it's Sudbury and Bedford. That's a that big district. Nice. You know, um, it's extremely diverse. Waltham is a, is a real city. Makes depends on mass transit quite a bit, but has the gorgeous uh, Charles River flowing right through it, which made it the first factory town in America, of course, back in colonial times. So uh, we we go from urban Waltham, albeit in a beautiful setting, out to very rustic places like Carlisle. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of gorgeous country in between. I got to applaud you for taking stepping away from legislative politics and all. You know, while you're raising your kids, I, I think it's really responsible. I found that with my kids that when they're off and gone, oh my gosh, I can get engaged in stuff now. So, um, kudos for you for for doing that. And, yeah, we uh, had, but, we had to, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, there were some bills to pay as well, and and the, the legislature is an enormous commitment. Uh, the, the salaries aren't aren't quite enough to cover college tuition, so it makes sense as well to to uh, right. earn a living in the private sector, but to return to public service when you can afford to. Yeah, and you have the time for it. Um, yeah, this time is great. Is <laughs> so I remember that uh, back in, well, actually, you reminded me that uh, a, a big effort back in the uh, early days was the um, creation of an original hazardous waste super fund. And you had yeah, a lot you know, of leadership I, that. Uh, uh, I grew up uh, right by uh, the site that became infamous uh, due to Jonathan Hart's book. I grew up right next to Woburn. I grew up in Reading, Massachusetts. Uh, I-93 separates my neighborhood in Reading, give or take uh, a half mile or so, from the very famous hazardous waste site in Woburn, which... So this is civil action with John Travolta and all that. That's right, and... Uh, that was an industrial site filled with factories, and these these were these were pre-industrial revolution factories. They were they made everything for local consumption, not for export. So this wasn't part of industrialized America; it was almost part of pre-industrial America. But in any event, lots of hazardous waste from two centuries of economic activity, and uh, that was true across the country. And Somehow we came to terms with this in the late 70s, early 80s, and determined that these places had to be cleaned up. All the stuff was moving toward groundwater, poisoning people. Uh, it was a massive job. And unfortunately, we were confronted with industry resistance. And so it made for uh, quite a battle in those years. Yeah, I can remember having uh, Boston Harbor Island Harbor meetings in the Hail and door building and people going, oh, this is where the civil action was going on and stuff. Um, well, the, 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 the problem was who was going to pay. Uh, it wasn't that anyone disputed the need to clean up the stuff, but the the folks who had inherited, uh, right. either through acquisition or because it was the same firm, the folks who had inherited those physical 
waste sites were determined not to pay for the several centuries of either just uh, either outright misbehavior or just lack of vision, lack of farsightedness. They were determined not to pay. And the question right. of who was going to bear the cost became a huge one in those years. But you actually set up a super fund. So um, how does one go about doing that? I mean, you got it through the, the legislature, not just... You well, know, you can, that's right. Uh, the mechanics of setting up the financing for cleanup were one thing. But this question of who would pay was always lurking just behind the fine print of the language. And I can tell you, and it's a commentary on state legislatures, that the problem arose not merely because uh, lobbyists had money and influenced legislators. It was also because legislatures lacked expertise. And once you realize, once you open the doors in a legislative drafting process to the people who know the most about a niche area, and that tends to be lawyers for the interests involved, as soon as you do that because you lack expert staff on your own, you're letting the lobbyists into the room, so to speak. If you don't monitor that process very closely, mischief is going to break out all over. What happened with our creation of a hazardous waste super fund is that the at one key point, the draft people brought into the room, supposedly in the interest of compromise, convinced the few legislators in the room at that moment that industry could not afford to pay for any past environmental degradation. <laughs> Basically, we would socialize all the costs of cleanup and country and companies would only be liable for environmental pollution from that day going forward. So two centuries of mischief were going to be socialized and the taxpayers would bear the entire brunt. Uh, I was confronted. I hadn't been in the room during those discussions. At some point, as a legislator, I learned that all past liabilities had been absolved. And then the question became, what what did I do and what did we do? What should we do as a legislature? That became a real dogfight. Yeah, you'd think that they would be okay about setting up a fund because the, the question is how much money goes in the fund, not the structure of having a fund. And yes, and would there be enough money only to deal with the future and building an infrastructure that would be, we hoped, environmentally pristine? Or alternatively, would the fund be funded by monies exacted by the companies and would the fund be sufficiently large to, uh, to pay for past cleanups and not just with taxpayer money? So that became the fight of the late 70s and early 80s. And I'm pleased to say, to cut to the chase here, that after a lot of tension in the legislatures, we were able to remove the language absolving current property owners from past liability. They pled uh, that they hadn't been aware when they purchased these properties of the amount of hazardous waste on the site and that they should be absolved. We said that they bought with notice, that there were plenty of history available indicating just how bad the situation was in places like Woburn and that they had to accept the responsibilities as current owners. In some cases, they were the historic owners as well. Properties had not changed hands at all. Right. We, in the end, so won bravo. the fight. And we, we got the lobbyists out of the room, metaphorically speaking, and restored liability for past acts 
that was a crowning achievement in the drafting of the Massachusetts law, and it spared taxpayers millions of dollars in costs and reimposed them on the companies that bore all or partial responsibility. Because now that area's got a new highway exit, and it's all it's all been uh, restored to livable space again. Yes, uh, finally, uh, and uh, you know we can all think of we can all think of wonderful instances of reclamation. Just to switch physical sites for a moment, uh, in the state senate, I represented Cambridge as well as some adjoining communities. Uh, I was no longer we had, my wife and I had moved from Reading years ago at that point. And I can tell you that the old Cambridge dump in North Cambridge is now, of course, the site of gorgeously landscaped soccer fields. And it's wonderful to uh, to see um, soccer players, recent immigrants to Cambridge, speaking dozens of languages, united by their love of sport, all playing in a beautifully laid-out area that was once uh, a landfill. So and they're not staggering because of the fumes or something? <laughs> well, there's all kinds of, as you know, there's all kinds of engineering that has to be done because somewhere deep down below those soccer fields still lies a great deal of waste. And so venting and uh, con- right. doing containment plans to make sure that groundwater isn't affected and that people aren't poisoned, that that's part of the bargain. Well, it's so great that the state oversees that because you just can't leave it to the, you know, the landowner to, to just opt into doing it the right way. And well, too much and, risk you know, of citizens, you know. Yeah. The other thing is that, that, you know, all we hear in, these, in this current presidential campaign year are complaints about presumed government overregulation. I can tell you, as somebody who's been involved uh, as a legislator, that private business comes to the legislature and comes to the governor often with a request that the rules be laid down and that costs be apportioned and that expectations be set for all players. What they don't want to do is to see the situation gamed by competitors who will realize savings that they can't realize. Right. There's a lot of requests by industry and by companies for fair, sensible, clear regulation. And uh, somehow, in an election year, the case for rule setting in a way that's fair to everyone gets lost and gets never mentioned. Yeah, it's really remarkable because as an entrepreneur, you want to know what the expenses are going to be going into the project. And so you want to know what the ground rules are. And if you say, well, maybe you can game the system, then it's a more difficult investment to begin with because you really can't get a handle on what it's going to cost. Yeah, there really is a disconnect. Uh, all you hear, as I say, in, a, in an election season there are complaints about in which every regulation somehow gets metamorphosed into an over regulation. But the truth is that day-to-day, the job of private sector and public sector together is very mundane. It involves people sitting in a room asking the question, what is fair? What is affordable? How can we practically do this? And at that moment, private business uh, is very interested in having somebody act as a good faith neutral, and that's often state government or federal government. And, and so yeah. the job for Democrats like myself is to make sure that we that we really do separate out uh, regulation from overregulation, that we don't have uh, any regulation that's truly excessive, but that we do uh, things in a sensible way. Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York, once uh, put the situation very elegantly. He said, well, 
we should have as a country all the government we need, but only the government we need. And I would translate that into environmental regulation. I would say that as a country and as a state here in Massachusetts, we should have all the regulation we need, but only the regulation we need. Uh, if we can adhere to that general philosophical rule of thumb, we can do good things for the business sector and for the citizenry both. Yeah, the problem is is that um, if you know businesses should not be allowed to uh, poison citizens, and so well, and often, you know, and business, businesses would concede <laughs> that point. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, that's the what the guys I talk to, so, and then it becomes a, a quarrel about details. Um, and the details crucially are important. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's like this whole fracking issue of putting in these poisonous chemicals in the ground and threatening groundwater. You know, the government should just insist that they use cornstarch that won't poison the water, and, you know, that's that's a reasonable thing rather than shut down their businesses and stuff. Y- yes, so, uh, you know, uh, one thing that drew me back to the legislature after 18 years in the private sector myself, albeit in healthcare rather than and industrial regulation. But one thing that drew me back is that figuring all this stuff out is very hard in a good way. It is yes. very worthwhile work day to day. Getting it right, while it does require you to draw on your 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 uh, supply of wisdom as well as experience. So I think uh, being a somewhat <laughs> older guy who's spent years in the private sector but years in the public, I, I think I'm a better decision-maker for it, and I'm looking forward to getting back there. Okay, well, these two somewhat older guys are going to be right back after this break. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Let me, let me 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Mike Barrett, who is running for state senate in on Beacon Hill here in Massachusetts. Uh, he's representing the third Middlesex district. Uh, Mike, how can people learn more about your campaign? Well, they could go to BarrettForStateSenate.org. Barrett has two R's and two T's, Rob, and Barrett for State Senate is one word. dot org. There's a website there, and they can learn much more than they'd ever dream they'd ever want to. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I see my own picture here on the Facebook bunch of people you got here. So, so <laughs> that looks pretty good. Um, so we're talking about um, how you set up a, um, ha- a the original Hazardous Waste Superfund. And as an aside, right now uh, in Boston Harbor, we have a dead fin whale floating around. And the the scary thing is that you cannot take it offshore because it's bioaccumulated so many toxins that it's a hazardous waste to dump in the ocean, nor can you bring it to a landfill because it's got so much bioaccumulated toxins in it as well. And wow. the, the dilemma is um, whosoever's beach it lands on has to pay the $10,000 cleanup expense. And so it was drifting towards Spectacle Island, which is half the the uh, city of Boston, and so for a while, the mayor was tearing his hair out, thinking, oh, no, we got to pay this. And then overnight, it drifted off, and now it's headed toward the state beach, and so Governor Patrick can pull his hair. <laughs> but uh, th- this issue of how do we deal with um, toxins and hazardous waste um, is not as simple as, you know, just throw it in the right trash can when you're done kind of thing, or recycle Yeah, you're, you're so right. That, you know, the story in terms of... Uh, the citizens getting their heads into this and legislatures getting their heads around these issues is that we did start with a concern about cleaning up the detritus from past centuries. But as we got more into the science of toxics, the state started to realize that it wasn't just a matter of cleaning up a Woburn for 19th century activity. It was also a matter of taking a look at current industrial processes and asking what poisons we were using, and what the heck we were going to do about those today. Yeah. So the state did move from hazardous waste cleanup of the past to reducing toxics in current industry, which threatened to poison land and water. And that that got me involved in my second big environmental issue, which was a pioneering effort by Massachusetts that involved a lot of people, including, I might add, Tom McShane, whom you know very well, and who is yes, a key yes. actor. Tom is the chairperson of the Massachusetts League of Environmental Voters. He's a great so leader Mc... at that C4. McShane was a young, was a young shaver uh, when I first knew him uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and an extremely effective young shaver, I might add. Uh, he was... Uh, the legislative liaison for an environmental office of, of environmental affairs to legislators. That, those were the duties he shouldered, am, among others. And this, again, the question was how, how to take a fair look at industrial processes which, as a byproduct, generate poisons in the soil and in the water, and how the heck we were going to assess 
costs for avoiding those. And uh, I, I, I'm happy to say that the Toxic Use Reduction Act that we passed in the 80s has stood the test of time, but it's also susceptible to improvement, as all past legislation is. So right now, in the Massachusetts legislature, uh, for 2013, improvements finally, I think it's the first serious effort to update the state's Toxic Use Reduction Act of the 1980s, and this new legislation looks very promising and tries to fund all the current science around using more sustainable materials, uh, less poison materials, right from the get-go. And uh, eventually, I'd like Massachusetts to be the state where you know mothers are able to say and fathers are able to say uh, 10 years from now, well, the toys my kids are playing with don't include any supposedly inert poisons because state by state, we laid down statutory frameworks that actually created new markets, new markets for makers of safe inputs into finished consumer products. That's what you want to do with smart environmental regulation. You want to pass laws that not only possibly limit current industrial activity, but effectively create new businesses and new business opportunities. Those are smart laws, and I think we can update toxic use reduction to be smart. Yes, and that way you're getting ahead of the catch-up curve, you know, where, you know, where they're, they're spraying incredible toxics on airplanes to keep them from ice buildup, and that's just washing into the harbor. So then you've got to put in, you know, a wastewater treatment thing around all the runways, and that's kind of hard to do. And so good for you to encourage, hey, guys, you know, come up with an alternative so that the beaches in Boston Harbor aren't getting, you know, these um, poisons coming up on them. And I'll tell you, this is where campaigning for office actually teaches you something. Uh, I've been doing a very intense door-to-door during this current campaign for the state Senate out here. And one thing you hear at the door, and then we always say to people when somebody comes to the door, and it's either me or one of my canvassers, we always say, look, what's the single most important issue that you would like people to work on? And you would expect that people would say jobs in the economy. But actually, two other issues popped, and were almost tied with economic concerns. One was the cost of health care, something I know about because of my current background. But the other was the environment. And what people would say with respect to that is, I am so sick and tired of reading that something that was supposedly safe for me to use for my family turns out to contain poison. I am so tired that I was promised that this was okay, and then new research was done, and I found out that it might not be okay, that I have to buy different things at the market, that I have to buy different things at the clothing store. So the effort right now to get ahead of the curve, as you put it, Rob, and to make sure that we really are putting safe materials in so that we're not dealing with garbage out, creating headlines, four or five years from now. That is so important, and it would deal a lot with the frustration of moms and dads. Right. One problem is mercury dental amalgam that dentists put in people's mouths to, you know, fill cavities, that they're finding that the mercury is leaching out and hurting people. Not everybody, but occasionally, and it's not good to put that poison in your mouth. And unfortunately, the safer alternative is a little softer and a little more expensive so if you're in the military or on a reservation, you must get the cheapest 
uh, treatment. And so you have no choice about what kind of, uh, you know, uh, dental amalgam is going to be put in your mouth. And uh, this bill, this safer alternatives to toxic chemical bill that you're referring to, will say, um, look, here is an alternative. You've got to use it. And yes, you'll pay a little more to your dentist instead of for medical expenses. But as you were indicating, the entrepreneurs will look at this and say, look, we got to develop a slightly harder and maybe just the demand alone will bring the price down. But this has a rippling effect throughout the nation if Massachusetts can be the the, the bed where entrepreneurs, you know, develop, you know, because in California, they have the opposite. Once you prove it's safer, they'll mandate it. But here, th- this bill that you're referring to is uh, quite innovative. Yeah, you know, and, and you're, you're, rise, you're raising indirectly a very tricky issue for, for politicians, and, uh, and you're raising it in a good way. When we're in the legislature, we come under intense pressure to well, to save money at all costs in the short term. And we get beaten up by our competitors uh, any time we opt for quality over cost. People will insist that it's another instance of government's wasteful thinking. Right. Somehow, we have to make the case that cost reduction over a lifetime is the cost reduction we should be concerned about. If you can spend a little more up front, it's just like preventive health in healthcare. If you can spend a little more up front, you can guarantee long-term cost savings in terms of lives saved over the long term. So uh, people like me need to push back against the constant pressure to go for the lowest common denominator in today's expenditure. Sometimes a dollar spent today isn't waste. Sometimes it's a life saved tomorrow. And as we know, uh, happily... uh, when you avert illness in the long term, you're also saving money for the healthcare system. What I like about safer alternatives is that it it rewards entrepreneurs for developing that. So you have the case of where Dean Kamen developed this incredible wheelchair that enabled people in wheelchairs to crank up and go eye to eye with standing people and manipulate stairs. And the expense of the wheelchair was outrageous. So he came out with the Segway. You know, you've heard about the Segway, and that has the components of the wheelchair. So all the rich people are buying lots of Segways, and that's driving down the expenses for building the wheelchairs. Yeah, that's I mean, finding reaching critical mass in markets, no question. That's, in the long term, that reduces costs. Uh, yeah, so those, those, those are important considerations. You know, this stuff, no question, is very complicated, but it's complicated in a, <laughs> it's complicated in a good way. And uh, yeah. I... I, I like the prospect of going back to the legislature, being a little more understanding about this stuff than I was uh, before I began my private sector sojourn 18 years ago. Uh, I've seen the way business people have to think. I've seen the way markets work. I think we can harness those dynamics to good environmental ends and to good public health ends, and that intrigues me as I head back to the Senate. Yeah, that's what happened with uh, Freon being responsible for the ozone hole was the Montreal Protocol had a whole bunch of nations saying that we're going to switch to the safer alternative. And the safer alternative was also made by DuPont. So the chemical manufacturers got us onto a safer track and, and made a profit at the same time, which is just fine as long as we got off the harmful stuff. Now, you know, uh, that said, it, it's also worth, and I try to remind people in public forums of this during my campaign, what you have to develop a tolerance for is failure. Uh, one thing I've noticed being in the private sector, working with small startups in the area of healthcare and computers, 
is the sheer number of times a good idea ultimately doesn't come to fruition. For whatever reason, someone else comes up with a better idea and the product just doesn't survive competition in the marketplace. We have to get right. use. If the state is going to help fund clean energy, if it's going to help fund environmentally non-poisonous products, a lot of the bets it makes ultimately will prove to be bad bets for whatever reason, including the fact that technology is changing constantly. So this idea that you wasted taxpayers' money because you invested in Evergreen Solar or Solyndra or A123, the battery maker, maybe some of those bets were bad. I'm not going to embrace them. I wasn't. Uh, they weren't made on my watch. But as a general business practice, making bets inevitably involves making bad bets, and that's true of the private sector as well as the public, and it doesn't mean that the original bet was itself bad. It just means that life is uncertain and you're not going to get everything right, but you have to constantly experiment and constantly try uh, just to wind up with those few winners that makes a difference to really yeah. in people's lives. I mean, there were no flaws look, going in. You know, people, they have a good business plan and stuff, and then, as you said, sometimes things don't work out the way, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's a fact of life. Investors know that, that... You know, you know if they're going to invest in new startups, they're going to have a percentage. They're going to lose more than they win, but maybe the win yeah. will be big enough to justify it. I mean, ironically, and I would say this to uh, critics of clean energy investments, uh, those critics are often come from the business side. The true lesson that one learns from the business community is to take chances and to take risks and to be prepared to fail more often than you succeed. Right. And if you really borrow that idea from the business world and you bring it to government, you should be much more government. You should be much more tolerant of government's occasional misfirings. It's not that we bet on we, we that we try to pick winners. In truth, what government investments in clean energy and environmental activity currently do is we're fast followers. We never make the first bet. We always wait for the marketplace to indicate that a particular means of manufacturing solar panels say is going to be the means that actually catches on in the market. After the private market makes an initial call, we say, well, maybe that business that uh, warrants some public investment as well in order to get past an early hurdle. So uh, it's not yeah, that Governor Patrick is giving, you know, tax breaks to all solar, all, you know, clean energy efforts. And so it's a level playing field. It's like, okay, you all get some help or some breaks and, um, and take it from there, guys. Yeah. Now, you know, just to uh, further complicate the picture, it's not that I'm uh, embracing tax breaks for all industries or for all players in an industry. What I'm saying more generally is yeah. that things are tough, and making good policy judgments, including investment of the taxpayer's dollar, is very difficult to do. And within certain bounds, we can't tolerate waste, we can't tolerate incompetence, we certainly can't tolerate corruption and favoritism and special interest influence peddling. But we do have to tolerate a certain level of experimentation, which means a certain level of guessing wrong. Mm -hmm. The important thing is that we guess right more often than we guess wrong, and that's the ultimate acid test. And I can say again, to go back to environmental legislation, on, on fundamental things, whether it's the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or hazardous waste cleanup or toxic use reduction, by and large, uh, government gets it directionally right. And we, we address things that a century ago were killing people. So directionally, 
government regulation. I think manages to get it right more often than wrong, but we also have to be the first ones to realize that everything can bear with fine-tuning, everything can be tweaked to be better yet. That's why you amend laws, and you don't just let them sit paralyzed on the books in their original state. Yeah, we need to be adaptive to changing situations and able to amend. Excellent. Just like me. Well, why don't we take a breather, and when we come back, we'll talk more locally and more detailed. In particular, um, you know, what's going on with this uh, airfield out in um, Bedford? What is it, the Hanscom Air Base? Uh, the Massport Civilian Facility, yes. Let's talk about it after the break. Yeah, and it's how it's right next to a national park and what what the what arises when you're trying to mix, you know, national parks with um, an airport, I guess. Sounds good. Airplane stuff. Um, I'm talking with Mike Barrett, who's running for uh, state senate. And, oh, Mike, what's your website again? It's Barrett for state senate, one word, dot org. Great. We'll be right back after this break. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. I'm talking with Mike Barrett 
who's running for state senate here in Massachusetts of the 3rd Middlesex District. You can uh, learn more about his campaign at www.barrettforstatesenate.org. Barrett's got two R's and two T's in it. Uh, Mike, um, you're out there in Lexington, and uh, you've got an air base near you and a national park. Yeah, we have a, a problem that's been of decades uh, duration here. In World War II, um, a, a airport was built. Uh, this was before the era of National Historic Parks, I might add. So the airport came first. But it wasn't planned in the best possible way because this happens. It was built right alongside the long route the British took from Cambridge through Arlington up to Lexington to Concord uh, in 1775, the, the long trek that resulted in the first battle of the American Revolution. Well, this air base comes within several hundred yards of the dirt track the dirt track that the British took, ambushed the entire distance to Concord and the entire distance back by American colonials. So when national parks in cities like Lowell and elsewhere and in Boston got going and historic sites began to be reclaimed in the 1960s, we found that the air base had essentially paved over history and that it needed to be reclaimed uh, as part of our country's heritage ever since then, ever since the 60s and 70s. There's been a running battle about whether this airport operated on the civilian side, the Massport, that's the one we're concerned about, whether it would continue to expand uh, and essentially create all kinds of noise pollution and traffic pollution problems for a landscape that's supposed to be evocative of the 16th, 17th, 18th century for everybody in America and everybody in the world to visit. It's been a tough, tough issue about how to balance equities here. I've been active ever since I've been in Lexington, 16 years now, on behalf of citizens who want to make sure that the mindless pro-growth philosophy of Massport doesn't result in further degradation of the Minuteman National Historic Park in Lexington, Concord, Bedford, and Lincoln. So you're not trying to close the airbase down. You're trying to contain it and not have it spread. Actually, the, the airbase's original mission uh, would would work for us. Uh, I, I say that, by the way, somewhat unhappily. Yeah. Um, but let's leave aside uh, my own worldview. I'm not really sure in the long run, Rob, that these uses are compartable. The, no, uh, but I'm the talking strategically. What's that? I'm talking strategically, you know, what you're trying strategic, to... Yeah, so leaving yeah. aside my personal qualms about whether there's, this is really wise, we would be happy to see the airport stick to its original mission, which is called general aviation. So this means no ticketed passenger service of the sort people routinely see out of Logan, and no cargo, no UPS and FedEx planes, which, which would wreak havoc day and night on the landscape and on the people living nearby. We would like to see the general aviation mission uh, uh, adhere to, and that means uh, flight schools. It means people using their private recreational planes on the weekend. Um, it means it means limited use. That was the use anticipated for Hanscom in the wake of World War II after the war necessity uh, boiled uh, died down. But Massport, of course, feels pressure to expand and to in increase revenue, and they're constantly inviting people to start 
passenger service, they're constantly entertaining or tempted by the idea of very heavy freight service in and out of the airport. That would ruin the national park. And, uh, and so we fought a rear guard action for the last three decades. Yeah, that's legitimate. That's legit because, you know, the Massport's not doing this to Lawrence Airport. They're letting it just be what it is for those uses that you described, small planes, mostly private and stuff. And yet, for some reason, they're all over. I think it's your proximity to Boston, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, there are legitimate issues here. Happily, though, there are some resolutions, potentially, to get around the, the NIMBY problem. Um, Worcester has an airport, also managed by Massport, that's in desperate need of additional traffic. And right. Worcester would love to be supporting 495-oriented industry and, and uh, industry within the city. They would love to be a true business and industrial hub. Worcester's always been proud of its own commercial history. They would like to see that commercial history flourish into the 21st century. There are problems with expanding use of Worcester Airport, but there's also the potential, if we can tackle those problems, of Worcester serving the kind of overflow role. And I'll mention two other airports eager for business, and they're Manchester and New Hampshire, and, of course, Green Airport near Providence, Rhode Island. Right. So let, me interrupt have... for the, let me interrupt for the, lo- the non-local listeners that um, you have Boston Airport right in Boston Harbor, and That's then Logan. you have Logan Airport, and then you have uh, the Route 128, well, what's that, circle that's like the beltway that goes around about uh, 15 miles out of Boston, and Hanscom is near that, and then 30, 30 or 40 miles out is the 495 beltway, which also arcs around. And that's closer to Worcester, and so uh, it makes sense to have, you know, something more out by the second beltway than in close to Logan. Well, and, and, and then and, the other and, airports uh, are further out. Yeah. Well, Manchester, New Hampshire is reasonably close to 495, yeah, I-93 to the north, and uh, TH Green Airport in Providence is very close to 495 at the extreme southern end. So you've got the possibility of. Manchester, three, New Hampshire, Worcester, Massachusetts, right and yeah. Providence, Rhode Island, serving as overflows. And you could spare Minuteman National Historic Park as a consequence. You could keep growth at Hanscom Civilian Airport down and make everybody happy. It makes sense. You've you got Worcester right near the Mass Turnpike, Route 90. Um, and, yeah. yeah. So I'm not, You know, I might add, uh, because the, the citizenry out here... Is flexible itself. Uh, we're very supportive of a military R&D facility that's near the Massport. Uh, Hanscom Air Force Base right. doesn't fly many jets anymore, but it does very important advanced research for military and, and oftentimes civilian uses, ultimately. We want to support the military installation. We think R&D is what New England does best. Right. What we're concerned about is, is mindless expansion of civilian air traffic when there really are other alternatives. Absolutely. Mike, we're, we're running short on time, and I, I want to know more about, um, you, you know, here you are rushing headlong back into the fray of running for candidate, and one of the items you've been talking about very, I think, very eloquently is um, what uh, we should do about reducing our carbon footprint. So I, I did take a little bit of a risk in this campaign, but hell, that's what, excuse my uh, French, that's what political yeah. campaigns are about. So I came out uh, for an increase in the gasoline tax. The state gasoline tax is 21 cents in Massachusetts. I advocated in my five-person Democratic primary 
that we could increase it four pennies to a quarter. Uh, four pennies for you and me, if we drive 12,000 miles a year, and that's about average, doesn't aggregate out to much, Rob. It's about uh, $19.40. Plus, uh, the gas prices go up and down. The gas prices but, go up and down more than that any, every week or something. Yeah, but here's the interesting thing. If you and I pay essentially 20 bucks a year, for every 12,000 miles we drive, yeah. it aggregates into real money, <laughs> about $120 million, and that happens to be the annual operating deficit of the MBTA, the mass transit system that serves most of my district. So really? I, would like to see, I would like to see a very modest increase in the gas tax dedicated to alleviating this chronic annual headache of funding our subway and buses and, and I would add one additional refinement because I'm always thinking about Chelmsford, the northernmost town in my district. It's part of Greater yep. Lowell. It's not part of the T service area. I would apportion gas tax revenues so that local roads, bridges, and bus systems in Greater Lowell uh, could roughly keep the revenue it generates and use it for local services. It wouldn't all be uh, siphoned from Western and Central Mass into the T. I think we could have rough apportionment, rough proportionality, and see that gas tax money create jobs and, at the same time, reduce the exhaustion of fossil fuels and reduce the so-called carbon footprint. Well, that sounds very fair. If people, you know, want to drive, they they pay a little more. And um, as the cost of gas has been going up anyways, um, people are reverting to the public transport, and the public transport needs money to make it possible. So this is... Well, I can tell you, the biggest city in my district is Waltham, 60,000 people, very reliant on bus system, especially for people who don't own cars. But I can tell you the suburban areas in my district, Concord, Massachusetts, Lincoln, Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts, they all have rail, they all have a rapid rail, commuter rail into the city of Boston. And that commuter rail is operated by the MBTA just as much as the buses are, and all are endangered and subject to cutbacks because the system simply cannot be financially self-supporting. The, the, the fares don't quite cover the cost. If we're going to continue to upgrade the fleet and give people a decent subway ride, there has to be some modest subsidy from car drivers. And uh, each of us, I think, not that anyone likes to pay taxes, but $20 a year is pretty reasonable to remove this mass transit headache and to uh, keep the subways and the buses going. Absolutely. And the rapid rail from the, for the suburbs. And if we're going to be driving less, we might want to ride our bicycles more. So tell us a little bit in the remaining minutes about a bike trail. Yeah, well, as I say, my wife commutes every morning via bicycle 11 miles each way down to the Airwise subway station along the Minuteman bike path here in Lexington and Arlington. And so we're interested in biking uh, as uh, hobbyists as well. And I'm supporting the improvement of the Bruce Freeman bike trail through my district. It starts up north in Chelmsford and runs all the way down to the southern point in my district, which would be Sudbury. There are parts of that mileage that aren't yet reclaimed and improved that are still old railroad bed. And so improving uh, the fitness opportunities for everybody, the exercise opportunities, and doing something to create commutes for people like my wife to get them off the road, uh, those are all good things. So I'd like to see bike trail improvements focused on in the legislature just a little bit more than they have been. I agree. I, I'm fortunate. I can walk to work, but I love bike trails for recreation. 
Uh, you know, it, it's amazing. Uh, this Minuteman bike trail in Lexington, Bedford, also in my district, and Arlington, the Minuteman bike trail on weekends, you should see it, Rob. The number oh, of I do. I go to Mahoney's. Jogging. I can't get into Mahoney's because of the bike trail. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> it's bicyclists, but it's also joggers. It's also walkers. Uh, it's people ambling along at every conceivable speed, but really enjoying themselves. What an amenity. That's New England at its finest. It takes a little money. It takes a little advanced thinking. It takes some vision. But we really get it back in terms of quality of life. Who would trade that away? It benefits so many people at so little cost. So uh, I'm, uh, I like to go back to the state senate and, and see the Bruce Freeman rail trail through Concord and, and uh, Lincoln and Sudbury. I'd like to see that. Uh, seamless from end to end. And then, you know, there are some other bike trails. Waltham, actually, and Weston have an interesting east-west bike trail project underfoot that would culminate in Boston but extend all the way out to Framingham. I'd like to see that north-south trail intersect with the Bruce Freeman, which runs north to south. I'd like to see that east-to-west trail to Weston and Waltham funded as well. So these things take time, but uh, I'm very optimistic that the citizens love this stuff and that we can carefully create more options for them. Yeah, because the MBTA can only go out so far, and then to have a bike trail that gets you there is really great so that you can combine the two. I sent um, uh, actually a, a lot of public support. Money is always a, a rate-limiting factor, but I would like to see it as the economy slowly comes back, and it is coming back, uh, although frustratingly slow. But as it slowly does come back, I'd like to see these recreational opportunities for people funded up and move forward. Well, we're seeing a burgeoning number of bike riders around Cambridge and greater Boston. You know, the uh, Hubway uh, bike program that started in Washington is now here in Boston and Somerville. They just put up bikes, you know, where you can walk up to a bike and swipe your credit card and, and ride off on an upright bicycle, dress for work. You don't have to bend over the handlebars with a crash helmet on or something. You can, you know, look at other drivers in the eye. It's a, just a great opportunity. And so increasingly we're seeing, you know, bike paths put on the road so that the cars know where the bikers are going to be and stuff. Um, this is Yeah, yeah I mean, the whole, uh, it's great for Boston. Uh, uh, I spend a certain amount of time in Somerville, and there's the beginnings of a great bike trail that uh, out of Davis Square and headed all the way back towards East Somerville and I-93. There's a lot of great stuff going on, and you know this is this is a again a case for old style environmentalism. My dad is a lifelong Republican, and he's still around. I'm grateful to observe, as is my mother, and he always taught me that conservation was Teddy Roosevelt Republicanism. That that uh, both parties yes. revere natural open spaces. So my hope is that despite all this talk about gridlock and the failure of bipartisanship, that the environmental area writ large should be uh, a set of issues where conservatives and liberals can come together. It should be one of those things that happily makes for uh, true Absolutely. shared values. Absolutely. Uh, so Mike, I'm we're out of time. I'm optimistic. Uh, Mike, Mike Barrett, I want to thank you for taking the time and wish you all the best in your campaigning for the state senate. Thank you, Rob. And Mike, can people write, send you an email? Uh, they can sure can. They can send me one to, yeah. to Mike, M-I-K-E, at BarrettForStateSenate.org. One word, Barrett for State Senate. 
And that's it for this time of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.